Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.09 in the Twin Cities. We're at 49 degrees. Time now to chat with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. Talking politics, how are you, Professor Shear? I am well, thank you. All right. Well, listen, let's get right into it. Uh, the big development uh, in the presidential race certainly is... Finally, Joe Biden got into the race. Uh, yeah. your, your thoughts about his candidacy, he still is on top. When it, when you look at all these polls, whether it's by state, uh, nationally, he's either tied with the top in front or else right there with Bernie Sanders. Right. Your thoughts about him finally getting in and what are his challenges right now? Well, uh, there are essentially two theories about Biden. I'll give you both of them. Uh, the negative theory about Biden is that he has support, but it's shallow and could easily shift based on momentum for another candidate. That he's, uh, he's basically leading because of name identification and not necessarily because he's a magnetic candidate. So that's a negative argument. The positive argument is that uh, he's got 20 opponents. <laughs> And uh, how how does anybody emerge from a field of 20 opponents to defeat the front runner, uh, particularly when he's going to be well-funded and is better known than most of the other people in the field? So, uh, you know, you can argue it either way, Esme. Right. And and I think, I think though, it's interesting, and, and I, I agree with you, those are the two differing views of Joe Biden. I, I do think, though, that Joe Biden, yes, he's been out there for a while. I do think that, that people – came to sort of embrace him as the vice president. He is a known entity. And um, I wonder, though, if if one of his problems is that even people who think they know Joe Biden and think they really like Joe Biden are going to find out about a a past Joe Biden that they weren't aware of. Well, here's what's really interesting about Biden is that he has had 46 years in national office before running for president. Now, no presidential candidate in American history has had such a long record in national office before running for office. The previous record holder was Martin Van Buren, who was in national office for 31 years. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So that's, I mean, that that really is a testament to how, I mean, he was very young. He was in his 20s when he was elected to to the Senate. Elected to the Senate. In 1972. (laughs) Which was a long time ago. Yes, yes, very much so. So there's a big record there, uh, and I suppose a lot of his opponents for the nomination view that as a target-rich environment. Uh, But the question is how much will people care about Joe Biden's positions 30 years ago or 20 years ago? Um, that will, I think, have a lot to do with how well Biden does, this, the, you know, running for the nomination this time. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that's come out um, 
and it, because of the long track record, and when you think about it, being elected in 1972, that was a very different era in, in, mm-hmm. in, in goodness knows so many ways. It's, it's impossible to understate that. Yeah. But one of the things I thought that was fascinating that came out is that Joe Biden actually called Anita Hill. And for for people of a certain age, for women of a certain age, including myself, that was just a galvanizing moment. And uh, it was Joe Biden was the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he was not particularly receptive or helpful to Anita Hill. And and I think what he was hoping to get when he called her privately a, a number of weeks ago was maybe her blessing. He apologized to her. Well, he apologized in a way to her. And expressed regret to her, but she didn't give she didn't give him a full apology. She didn't give him a a, a clean slate. Um, is that ancient history that that is going to get buried here? Does it really matter still, or is that one of the big questions? That is one of the big questions. I think there is a group of uh, uh, more left oriented Democratic activists for whom this is a major problem. The question is how many are there, and uh, they'll. You know, they'll certainly be uh, numerous in caucus states, uh, but whether they'll be a big part of primary state electorates is not at all clear. And another thing to note, Esme, is that the number of caucus states in the nomination process has gone down. It's now about 15. It used to be about 20. So uh, that will matter less, I think, in the ultimate outcome. Right. And and. When you talk about the, the number of caucus states going down, we're one of them who's yeah, losing right. the caucus, which yeah. which is, um, I think, going to be uh, great. Just on, on a side note here, um, I, I, I just happen to think that that's a good thing. I actually was at – in St. Paul at the caucus uh, – at a caucus in St. Paul in 2016, and it was so crowded almost overwhelmingly – and again, this is St. Paul – with Bernie Sanders supporters, it was so crowded. And obviously, you know, people can't, unlike voting, where you can space it out or you can do it in advance or days in advance, you, you've all got to come at the same time. People actually fainted yeah. in the rooms. I mean, it was just, it was really out of control. And people who were, um, you know, I, I just, I looked at it and I said, this is just not a, a, a good system for people who are have trouble getting around or people who have children. I mean, people were trying to juggle young children there, and I thought, this just isn't isn't right. The logistics were all yeah. wrong. It's not a system designed for heavy popular participation. Right. Uh, it cannot accommodate that, and right. that's why it's gone. Right, and and it just it just was not, you know, for those people who had, you know, who are older or who might not be well or who had children, it just was not a, a good system. As I said, people were literally fainting in some of those rooms at the, at the St. Paul School, and the, the folks running it were doing the best they could, but it was just there were too many people there. There were too many people who wanted to um, take part, but but I do I did get sidetracked there. Um, but but so there are fewer caucuses this time around. I mean, do you think that helps Joe Biden? Yeah, I do, because I think that he will get uh, – he will do particularly well with Democrats who are not carrying uh, heavy issue agendas uh, into their their activism. And uh, that uh, really includes a larger number of people, a bigger percentage of people in a primary electorate as opposed to those who show up at precinct caucuses. People who show up at precinct caucuses are willing to spend four hours in the middle of the winter – Pursuing their agendas, and that's usually a small group of people who are deeply committed. And those, as 
you said, are Bernie Sanders supporters, people who I think probably have strong uh, uh, left-oriented principles in the Democratic Party. That's not the base for Joe Biden. He has to appeal more to, uh, I guess, less motivated, more moderate uh, Democrats. Uh, and those are the people who are more likely to show up at a primary, not at a caucus. All right. Uh, Listen, we are chatting with Professor Stephen Shear. We're talking about Joe Biden's entry into the race. We do have to take a quick break. I want to ask Professor Stephen Shear, one of the things that happened this week after uh, former Vice President Joe Biden enters the race, he gets called out by the president for being too old. (laughs) So let's (laughs) let's get we'll we'll get your reaction and and your take on that. You're listening to News Talk 830 WCCO. It is 48 degrees in the Twin Cities, 819 here at News Talk 830. Esme Murphy chatting with Professor Stephen Shear. I want to ask you about the president calling out Joe Biden, saying, you know, basically the president's saying, hey, listen, I am young and strong and vibrant, and he's an old guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that. I, I thought that was, was remarkable. Of course, the president... Not that the, the, the vice president, uh, Joe Biden, is 76. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Trump is 72, um, and he's going to be 73, I think, in June. Um, what What are your thoughts about this? Well, he's already uh, come up with a name for Joe Biden. You know, right, of course he has. Hillary, it's Sleepy Joe Biden, who is not going to be up for the job. Uh, Esme, if Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee in 2020, this will be the first time in American history you will have a choice between two major party nominees who are in their 70s. This has never happened before. So uh, that would be remarkable. I think that, you know, if you're going to raise that issue against Joe Biden, it helps if you're not 73. Well, that's what I was, that's what, you know, um, I, I, I think I think I, I agree with you completely. And I think the fact that the president is 73 and the president, um, I mean, while he appears very healthy, I think he looks very much the same as he did when he took office. Right. He's obviously um, he's sort of um, he has released medical reports, but um, uh, he, he released one report from a doctor who said he was the healthiest president in the history of the United States, which is obviously. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have I, trouble with that. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> how could he possibly have know how healthy everybody else was? But um, I, I do think that that how I agree with you. I do think that that helps Joe Biden, and I think Joe Biden obviously is a few years older. He he does appear healthier. He's you know not overweight, whereas the par- the president appears to be. Mm-hmm. A little on that side. Right. And uh, it does look as if Joe Biden has had some plastic surgery done to sort of nip and tuck here and there. Uh, on the other hand, his hair does seem to be a natural color. So <laughs> Right. Although although I think he definitely has had the hair plugs. I don't think there's any oh, question yeah. about no, that. No, that happened back in the uh, in the uh, late 1970s. He had a hair transplant. Right. He would be bald as a billiard ball. Otherwise. Right. <laughs> um, but it, it's... Um, it that I, I do think is is going to um, I, I do think that that helps a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think it counters that. And then also, you know, one of the things that's come up with Joe Biden, too, recently 
is you have uh, had a number of women say that he touched them inappropriately. Right. Um, when he met them or he kissed their head, uh, you know, stuff that, that I just can't imagine somebody who I don't know doing to me. I just, you know, you just don't act that way. But Joe Biden apparently does. It's um, Al Franken resigned for something right. awfully similar. But, you know, uh, also some male reporters have said he, he grabs them, too. He said he, oh, he grabs, he's a very that touchy I, fellow. <laughs> and does he kiss them on their hair? Well, that I don't know. I, you know <laughs> um, but in a way, um, I, I do think that, you know, Vice President Biden did come out and sort of address it. Mm-hmm. Um and, and said, you know, well, I've now I've I've learned or whatever, and I think, given that the president has had this kind of allegation made against him, oh, if yeah. not much worse, mm-hmm. I, you know, I I think it seems like a wash. Right. Uh, the one thing with Biden you have to worry about, though, is that he uh, is sometimes not verbally very disciplined. Uh, you know, he ran for president twice before, in 1988 and in 2008. And in 1988, he had to drop out because he had uh, frequently uh, used a speech that essentially was uh, copied from a British politician, Neil Kinnock, without attribution. Right. And then in 2008, uh, you know, he was running against Obama and Hillary and and did not make much of an impression then. So he's 0 for 2 so far. The question is whether, you know, he has learned from that and will be a more disciplined and effective candidate. Right. So he he is 0 for 2. And I think people forget that he was in that race. Remember 2008, it was was wide open, but Joe Biden was in there running and it it didn't work out. Obviously, he's at the top of the polls, you know, right now or most of the polls. Historically, have people who've been at the top like around now been the nominee? And I mean, I mean, let's face it, the convention is, um, well, it's a little over a year away, 14 months away. Right. right. Well, that tends to be the case. But I think you also have to keep in mind, you have to look at, first of all, the absolute level of support that the front runner has and then the margin between the front runner and the other candidates. And he's he's basically under 30 percent, so he's still got a ways to go. And Bernie Sanders is nipping at his heels, and there are several other candidates who could surprise and develop momentum very quickly. You know, uh, uh, Biden faces an immediate problem with uh, – the uh, the Iowa caucuses, caucuses don't favor someone who's a more moderate Democrat. And the New Hampshire primary, where already the polls show Bernie Sanders is well ahead. So if he starts out by losing Iowa and New Hampshire and then goes to South Carolina, who knows uh, more how the stands at that point. Right. And, and, and that's an interesting point about Iowa and that bounce, although I think people might say, look at New Hampshire and say, well um, – you know, Bernie Sanders is just the senator next door. You know, he's right. there. So 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 that that could be a disqualifier too. The other thing is that that um you know you don't know which candidate is going to surge. I mean it doesn't you know what are your thoughts about how Senator Klobuchar is doing? 
Well, uh, I think Biden's announcement is not good for Amy Klobuchar's presidential campaign, but is good for her vice presidential campaign, in that she would, I think, be a very attractive vice presidential nominee, a woman, someone with a similar issue profile who could appeal to political independence in a way that Biden does. Uh, right now, Amy Klobuchar is at about 1% in the national polls in a 21 candidate field. That's tough. It's very tough. Yeah. Um, and, Steve, I do want to let you know, like at 831, we are going to take an update from CBS News on that fatal shooting at a synagogue in uh, California mm-hmm. earlier today. But um, I do want to ask you about the fact I, – I did think it was sort of brilliant of Biden – to put his headquarters not in Delaware, where he's from, you know, when most people have it, you know, where they're from, but in Pennsylvania, where he was actually born and grew up, right. and and saying you got to win Pennsylvania, and you do have to win Pennsylvania, oh, yeah. and and Donald Trump won Pennsylvania. I thought that was a very good move. Yeah, and uh, that's I think one of the arguments for uh, Biden's electability that he can uh, perhaps more than any other candidate in the field have a serious chance of carrying Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the three states that delivered the presidency to uh, Donald Trump in the Electoral College. And I actually think, if you look at the uh, Democratic field, that uh, in a general election, Biden would be a very formidable opponent to President uh, Trump. Right. Um, and, and, and that's something that, that has come up um as well, but I, I do think, and we were talking that about that earlier. Just you know, the fact that it was Wisconsin; those slim, slim majorities in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania states that are traditionally won by Democrats that went for uh, Donald Trump, and of course, infamously, uh, Hillary Clinton never even campaigned in Wisconsin. I don't think the president is actually President Trump is actually holding a rally in Wisconsin tonight, as we right. speak, right. Um, in, in Green Bay. I don't think that's going to happen again to Wisconsin. I think I think Wisconsin, because we've got a lot of listeners in Wisconsin, I think Wisconsin, you're going to feel the love this time around. Right, but you know, also, I'm surprised to see that Minnesota's going to feel the love, too, that the uh, Trump people see uh, a caring Minnesota as a real possibility. Now, I don't know that they have looked very carefully at the 2018 results in Minnesota, but uh, uh, we will get a lot of attention. Right. Well, he we he came pretty close. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it was 50,000 votes. I mean, it was one of the last states right. that was called. Right. Yeah, uh, Hillary carried the state by only about 1.6 percent. But in 2018, you really did have a sizable blue wave in this state. You have to wonder if Trump can uh, overcome that in 2020. It's not clear to me he can Right. And Minnesotans traditionally do, you know, split their vote and separate their vote. But but, you know, you you raise a very good point, but it was certainly much, much closer. And I do think the president, every time he comes here and he was here just a couple of weeks ago, you know, says, hey, I, I one more visit I could have won and, and he might be right. 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 Uh, well, uh, he's certainly going to test that theory. In 2020, and we're going to find out. So, uh, you know, he'll be campaigning a lot in uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota uh, in 2020, as will Joe Biden. So we will not be flyover country. Right. Not at all. And, and, and you know, the, the Trump people said that that last minute visit they made to Minnesota two days before the election, uh, he actually campaigned at the uh, airport, was designed to 
bleed into the Wisconsin media market because our market here, we've got a lot of Wisconsin viewers, and that's oh, exactly yeah. what, what he did. And he did uh, pick up, obviously, Wisconsin nearly picked up Minnesota. It's 8.36 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock, chatting with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. Let's shift gears here and talk about the the scene at the state capitol in St. Paul. Uh, May 20th is that deadline that's set in the state constitution for arriving at a budget and overall agreement uh, for state government. And I just don't see how that's going to happen uh, what are you, what are your thoughts? Well, you do hear uh, vaguely optimistic sentiments from both Paul Gazelka, the Republican leader of the state Senate, uh, Melissa Hortman, the Democratic leader of the state House, and Democratic Governor uh, Tim Walz. But the agenda differences are really very large uh, because uh, the Walz proposals are really a very ambitious increase in uh, state spending and in raising revenues. And Republicans do not want to raise those revenues, and they want spending to be uh, significantly lower in a rate of increase than uh, President or than uh, Governor Waltz wants. So how do we get from here to there? Uh, it's not at all clear how we do that, and we've only got about three weeks to do it. Right. And, and, and that's and, and, you know, these bills are enormous and they've got to get it done by May 20th. If they don't, they can go into a special session. But if they don't. And I think I think that the system of government we have here in Minnesota, I think it's very confusing for a lot of people that there are some years where if they don't reach an agreement, it's OK. But every other year, you've got to reach an agreement. And right. if you don't, there could be a government shutdown. Folks, this is one of the years they've got to reach an agreement. <laughs> right. It's a biennial budget. It'll be around $50 billion. Right. So it's going to be, uh, you know, it goes up steadily because of increases in, in uh, many of which are automatic in the programs. But uh, 42% of the state budget is health care, 18% is education. So there you're almost at two-thirds. And there are big differences in the education bills between the state house and the state senate and also big uh, big differences on health care policy uh, do we keep the two percent health care provider tax uh, uh, the republicans in the senate say no democrats in the house and the governor say yes uh, just you i mean there are so many yeah. differences it's hard to see uh, right. uh, how you really uh, get to an agreement. The other thing to keep in mind, I think this is particularly the case in the Republican Senate, is that Republican senators uh, have to run for renomination, and voting in favor of tax increases is, is very difficult for an incumbent trying to be renominated uh, in the Republican Party in Minnesota. And that, I think, is a real impediment to any sort of agreement with Democrats who do want a series of tax increases. So you mean they've got to run for renomination soon? Yeah, right. Twenty twenty because the entire state senate is up in right. twenty twenty. So uh, there are electoral consequences for budget decisions now for Republican senators. Right. So so in in twenty eighteen when the House flipped, the Minnesota House flipped from it was in Republican control, it flipped to Democratic control. The entire House was up. Mm-hmm. And and you saw this flipping here, yes. but none of the Senate was up. 
And right. um, what's not clear is, you know, I, I think I think, you know, Democrats like to say, well, if they had been up, they would have lost, but they weren't up. <laughs> um, but that that is something that they are up so that when does the nomination process of the party process starts getting uh, underway pretty soon? Right. It does. Uh, it will occur in the summer of 2020. But uh, and a, a lot of decisions will be made about who do, who runs for a reelection, who decides to contest incumbents after this session plays out. So the results of this uh, this session will, I think, have big electoral consequences. Another thing to mention in terms of the electoral consequences of this session, uh, we have about a dozen uh, new uh, Democratic representatives in the Twin City suburbs who are on record now uh, favoring a twenty cent a gallon gas increase. Uh, and I, well, the, you know, those ads write themselves in the suburban right. district, and. Uh, so there'll be uh, re- electoral risks on the Democratic side as well. Right. Well, one thing, you know, and, and, and about that gas tax, I mean, Tim Walls won pretty darn decisively. I mean, he he won very handily, mm-hmm. and he did campaign on a gas tax. Now, granted, when he was campaigning for governor in that election, again, which he won very easily, I mean, it was more than 10 points, mm-hmm. uh, he was talking about numbers. He wasn't talking about a specific you know amount or cent amount but the estimates he was looking at were lower they were 10 percent about 10 cents i i think many people thought 10 percent would be the high end of possibility yeah and 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 that was a surprise yeah yeah um is that something i mean do you think that that's sort of a negotiating chip that he's going to come back around well, you know, he's he's made these uh, made that clear even in his state of the state address that he was willing to compromise, and so I think it's an opening bid. I really don't think that it will occur this year. Uh, Margaret Anderson Kelleher, who is the transportation uh, commissioner, uh, has said this is a four-year project to get all these uh, revenues passed for transportation. Uh, so I think even she understands the difficulty of getting something done this year on the magnitude of twenty. Right. But, uh, you know, as they kind of struggle with all these issues and also that medical or that that medical services tax is one that's very tricky. This is a a two percent tax that's been in effect for quite a while. Mm -hmm. It was set to be phased out. And now so it wouldn't be a new tax, but in a way it would be a new tax. So that's what's so tricky about it. Yeah, it would be a continuation of the – it would – extending the current tax uh, into the future, right? Right. Yeah. So so that that's a tricky one too, but I just don't see how any of these – either party can risk a government shutdown. <laughs> well, you know, we've done it before, and it could happen again. Uh, uh, you, you know um, – in when uh, Mark Dayton was facing a Republican legislature, uh, we had a government shutdown, the only one in the country. Uh, we are the only state that has divided state legislative right. control. Republicans control the state Senate, Democrats control the state House, only state in America where that's the case. And in such a situation, a shutdown becomes much more likely. Right. Um, You know, there was an analysis, though, that came out um, that was um, basically from the governor's own staff saying that lower income Minnesotans would be hit hardest by the governor's plan. I know. That that didn't play very well at all. 
No, well, the, you know, it's generally true at both the state and national level that if you want to raise a lot of revenues, uh, the rich you can hit to a certain extent, but most you have to go where most of the taxpayers are, and that's what the uh, Waltz plan does, and most of the taxpayers are not rich, and that's, what, that's why you get this result. It's an embarrassment for the governor, but it is a fact of physical life. Right. Um, but he seems to think that, that he's got sort of a mandate here. I mean, I, and again, again, the, the time is sort of evaporating. And, and to a certain extent, you know, you can't do it all in the last day. Um, it, it, it takes time to write these bills. It takes time to work them out. And I think that's what gets so difficult here. Right. And I think the first real test will be whether they get an agreement on a tax bill, because once you get an agreement on a tax bill, you know how much money you have to work with in the budget and can begin to work within those parameters. But if you can't get agreement on a tax uh, number, uh, you really can't do budgeting. And so that's going to be the acid test in the coming days. All right. Uh, We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll have some closing thoughts with Professor Scheer. Uh, You're listening to News Talk 830-WCCO. Eight forty-seven. We are back here as May Murphy, along with Professor Stephen Shear, chatting about some of the difficulties at the state level when it comes to a political solution to our budget woes or getting a budget so we don't get into a government shutdown. Um, one of the things you, you almost see when you kind of look at the Capitol these days is that the governor seems to be trying to push this together on the sheer force of his will and energy. I mean. Yeah. He he is sort of everywhere, which is, um, you know, in marked contrast to obviously Governor Dayton was having some very significant health problems yes. in yes. the final months, more more so than we even realized. I think we were all so busy kind of covering the election that we really, you know, didn't realize that he was in the hospital for a couple of months. Um, right, but, right. But um, your thoughts about sort of the governor's leadership, and obviously this is somebody who I think is uh, – I think he he feels almost like if he just keeps churning out another news conference, he can get it done. That's right. (laughs) Uh, So I think uh, he's doing two things. First of all, he is emphasizing, as you mentioned, uh, a mandate from 2018 and and really hanging his hat on that. And then second of all, he is uh, essentially engaged in a permanent campaign. You know, he's out there working the state. Uh, paying uh, particular attention to greater Minnesota, where he thinks uh, Democrats can really make a difference in uh, in developing a position as a long-term majority party in the state, since he's from Mankato and thinks he can appeal to greater Minnesota. So uh, he's doing those two things, and with the hope that this will build momentum for his policy proposals. But um, most people don't think about political leaders in in terms of well, I like him, therefore everything he wants to do I right. <laughs> you know. And I think he is very likable, but that doesn't mean people want to pay twenty cents a gallon for gas more for gas. You know, that's an entirely different matter. Right, right, and and so I, I think I think that's going to be interesting to see what happens. But again, I I just think that. I just I just don't see how I don't think either of them. I think it's a much more practical and certainly in terms of the um, interpersonal dynamics, they certainly disagree just as much, but they at least seem to 
be a lot more uh, civil? I don't know if that's... that's yes. Oh, I think that's true. First of all, uh, Mark Dayton was really distant from uh, uh, from state legislative uh, Republicans, and there was uh, some, uh, I think, bad blood between them, um, whereas Tim Waltz, you know, has spent many years as a legislator, is used to understanding that you have to make agreements and uh, come to compromises in order to get something through the legislature. So he knows that world and is comfortable in that world. And uh, Paul Kozelka is not as contentious a figure as, say, Kurt Dowd was when he was uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, so the person that, and Melissa Hortman is obviously not a fire breather either. So uh, the personalities are such that perhaps an accommodation is possible. But Esme, you come back to the policy differences; right. they're huge. Right, and 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 that's just it. So it's it's you know, and it's there have been news conferences over there that have kind of started off by saying, "Well, Governor Walls is, we appreciate him reaching out and being open and all of this stuff," but it's. <laughs> The, the policy differences are still vast, and again, the, the timeline is is you know really different. Let me ask you: because you're somebody who looks at other states and how they do things, do other states have a better system, or do they run into this problem too? Well, other states uh, have. Uh, uh, if you have divided government, you have uh, a problem. Yes, you have, you have problems. But uh, you, you, if you have divided government, you have. Uh, 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 one party controlling the legislature, another party controlling the governorship, and uh, uh, that may involve a simpler negotiation than the three-way negotiation that we have going on now with the uh, a governor, a house, and the senate all, you know, operating on their own agendas. Um, but and but most states, or many states, I should say, as may have one party government, and then all the bargaining occurs within a common consensus, partisan consensus, and uh, there's a lot less friction. So you know we're a divided state right now, and that's going to slow everything down. Right, and 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 that that's something that we're going to have to obviously um, see and 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 check out, and obviously. There are only a few weeks left for them to kind of come to an agreement about this, as we've been saying. And then they all, all do have the built-in time between May 20th and July 1st in which they can have a special session. Right. Although, now, they keep saying there won't be a special session. They think they how, can work this out. But so far, nothing's been worked out. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so the, the time is, is – it, it's very difficult to see how at minimum there's not going to be a special session. And I think the special session – I'm not sure that the public cares about that as much. It's it's the shutdown, oh, and yes. if those parks aren't open July yeah. 1st after, you know, <laughs> yeah. getting snow today in southern Minnesota, pe- people are going to be upset, and, and rightfully so. I mean, oh, the- I think so. I think so. Okay. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see, but right now it's hard to see the way forward. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, Professor Stephen Shear, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on this evening. Happy to do it, Esme. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Professor Stephen Shear, uh, again, always a pleasure to talk to him. Great insights. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens at the Capitol. I'll be over there actually more than I normally am. Um, I'll be over there on Monday of this week and then the following week, which is, I believe, starts with Monday, uh, May 6th. I'll be over there that entire week. So, And that's the way things have got to happen because they can't just do it all in the last week. Uh, the deadline, May 20th. Um, and so we'll see what happens, but it's going to be it's going to be tough. And, and they are extremely far apart, as Professor Stephen Shear said. 
Um, it's just very difficult to say, see, as he said, and as he pointed out, how they can bridge this divide because they are awfully, awfully far apart. Yes, they are more civil, but the gap is still there. Uh, that's all I can say. Uh, listen, do want to invite you to tune in to WCCU-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., bright and early. Uh, Mikey Gusnack and I will be there. Uh, we'll have the latest news. We'll have the latest on this horrible shooting uh, in California. A gunman, a uh, 19-year-old gunman, went in uh, shooting in a synagogue the last day of Passover. Uh, one person is dead. There are others that are injured. Um, CBS News will keep you updated throughout the evening. We'll have the latest tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., and also at 10.30 a.m. Um, then at 10.30 a.m., I'll have two special live guests. Um, uh, the first live guest will be uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who obviously has been in the news a great deal. Um, she is the freshman congresswoman. She won with an extraordinary uh, majority. She won with well over 75% of the vote, I think 78%. It was one of the highest vote margins in the entire country, and she was elected to the 5th Congressional District. Obviously, it is an overwhelmingly Democratic district. But uh, since her uh, you know, becoming a member of Congress, she has gotten mired into a number of controversies about uh, her past and present, mostly Twitter accounts. And the latest, actually, is uh, sort of a, a Twitter war with none other than the president of the United States, uh, President Trump tweeting uh, a number of weeks ago a video suggesting that uh, Congresswoman Omar um, essentially was not taking the uh, 9-11 attacks seriously enough. The genesis of that appears to be a comment that, that Congresswoman Omar made about the 9-11 attacks when she was talking to a Muslim group that was formed in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks to protect Muslims because there was so much backlash against Muslims. And I I think that the uh, statement was taken out of context. Um, I think she could have chosen better words, or, or I think anytime you talk about that, especially for her to talk about it, I think you've got to be just very careful. But anyway, the president chose this little snippet. He puts on this, uh, edits this video, which shows the worst moments of the horrible 9-11 attacks. And um, it's gotten millions of views. And since then, uh, Congresswoman Omar has gotten many, 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 and we're talking hundreds of death threats. Uh, so it's obviously a very difficult situation Um there, we're going to talk to her about that uh, controversy. We're also going to talk to her about she is the only member, a Democratic member of Congress, who is uh, from Minnesota, I should say, that is calling for the president's impeachment. Uh, she also has been very active. She's on a number of key committees. She's been active there as well. Uh, and she was back in the district all this week. She does represent 700,000 people here in the state of Minnesota, so we want to hear about her policy ideas as well. Uh, so we'll talk to her about that. We'll also talk with Marsh Hallberg, who is a criminal defense attorney. And for many years, he was actually a prosecutor. He's a very good, very well-known, prominent criminal defense attorney about the Mohammed Noor trial. Mohammed Noor, of course, is the Minneapolis police officer who was accused of murdering uh, Justine Ruschek Damon in 2017. Uh, we'll get Marsh Hallberg's take on that. He is an expert criminal defense attorney. He's also sat in on much of the trial. So tune in, WCCO-TV, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. tomorrow. 
All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.